Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great pleasure to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week, Dana Frank. Dana Frank is Professor of History Emerita at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Her articles about human rights and U.S. policy in Honduras have appeared in numerous news outlets, including the New York Times, The Nation, and Foreign Affairs. She has testified before both the U.S. Congress and the Canadian Parliament, and her book, which I highly recommend, is called The Long Honduran Night, Resistance, Terror, and the United States in the Aftermath of the Coup. Dana Frank, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Oh, thanks so much. It's such a great thing to be on. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for writing this tremendous book, which we can, uh, there's no way in the world we can touch most of it. It's it's a detailed uh, account. I highly recommend it. Uh, the Long Honduran Night. But for probably the billionth time you've done it, uh, for anyone who hasn't heard or has forgotten, can you give us briefly uh, what happened June 28th, 2009, and, and in the following months and years? Yeah, we're coming up on the 10th anniversary of the military coup of two, in 2009 when President Manuel Celaya, the democratically elected president of Honduras, was deposed in a military coup. And packed on famously packed on his pajamas in his pajamas to Costa Rica. Now he was uh, he had been democratic elected. He was not from the left. He came from one of the traditional right wing parties. So he was starting to move to the center and do some progressive things, which threatened uh, the Honduran elites who backed this coup at, in all the branches of the government. And that uh, in turn was not only this huge criminal act and a destruction of the rule of law and constitutional order, but it opened the door for the destruction of the rule of law in Honduras. So very quickly, the, the coup stabilized with U.S. backing, and we can talk about that, but the U.S. did everything it could. After initially condemning the coup to make sure that the coup leader, Roberto Micheletti, was treated as an equal partner in negotiations with the sovereign president of Honduras and then played out the clock until elections several months later and most all the candidates had pulled out of the elections by that point because there was no civil liberties and the military was occupying things. And then that, that the government that came in through that election, has that party's been in power ever since. We would call it the post-coup regime, which is still very much in power. And if anyone in the Obama administration had some kind of secret theory that that would be a, a compromise that would benefit Honduras, uh, they certainly would have been proven wrong in that horror followed upon horror with U.S. facilitation all along the way in the years after the coup, correct? Yeah, it's not just a question of, you know, there's been a lot of attention to the fact, quite rightly, that Hillary Clinton um, green-lighted the the process through which um, the post-coup regime came to power through a bogus election. And, of course, it was with Obama's um, approval. It's not just on Hillary Clinton's shoulders. Um, but also it's on the shoulders of uh, all sorts of folks ever since, including John Kerry, who continued to support the regime, and, of course, Trump. And the U.S., you know, gave this regime green light after green light. There was an election in 2013 when a new opposition party may or may not have won the election, and the U.S. didn't um, was part of the process of giving the uh, premature to the current dictator, Juan Orlando Hernandez, and it has supported the current dictator, Juan Orlando Hernandez, um, ever since. Um, including when he uh, ran for re-election in 2016 uh, and 17, in clear violation of the Honduran Constitution. The Honduran Constitution says 
You absolutely cannot run for re-election. You can't even advocate it as a sitting president. And the Supreme Court that he himself, in yet another criminal act, had overthrown in the so-called technical coup of 2012, when he was president of Congress, that Supreme Court then ruled like, well, Constitution doesn't apply, and it's just like the United States, the Supreme Court has no right to do that. And then with that green light, he then ran for president last year, and the U.S. State Department um, gave a green light to that that interpretation of the of the Constitution and allowed him to run. And then last uh, November, not this last one, the one before November of 2017, Juan Orlando was... Uh, Again, an illegal candidate, and when he, um, uh, there was an opposition candidate of the unified opposition named Salvador Nasrallah, and when the election returns came in the night of the election, it was very clear that Nasrallah was winning by several points when 57% of the votes were counted, and the government just shut down the computers for two days and then gradually over the next week and a half um, let out 5% of the votes at uh, outcome at the time. And lo and behold, he won by one and a half points at the end, and the U.S. just gave that a green light, rubber-stamped that election, and he remains in power, despite the fact that uh, 22 people were killed by the military, mostly by the military police while in the act of protesting or even watching a protest after the elections. The activists in Honduras during these years uh, were facing kidnappings, torture, murder. Uh, and there's a, a moment you describe when you, you spent a lot of time in Honduras and a lot of time in Washington, D.C. You describe uh, going into a meeting at the U.S. State Department with a State Department official uh, and trying to tell this person that some people had just that morning been kidnapped in Honduras. Uh, and you describe a response of cold, willing oblivion can you can you recount what happened? Well, you know, I don't generally in the book talk about my meetings with the State Department, the embassy, because the rules are that if you talk about them, they'll never talk to you again. And this is one of the ways in which they exercise power over reporters and academics and all kinds of people who would like to make public what the State Department does. You know, the the part of the arc of the book is my own experiences and my own um, learning experience and. You know, I've been a U.S. history professor my whole life. I've known a fair amount about foreign policy, but watching how the State Department operates and its nefarious tactics in live time and how the empire works has been really chilling and watching that over and over again. And that was just one little incident. I was with a, um, I was actually in Washington to testify before the House, and I was with a prominent Honduran former judge who had been deposed for opposing for opposing the coup, and we went to meet with a State Department official. And I got an email as we were walking in the meeting saying that two um, people that work for a U.S.-based NGO that had been accompanying an at-risk community had just been kidnapped at gunpoint by 40 armed men. And um, we didn't know entirely if these two people were safe. And the official says, oh, get back to me with the information later. And for me, it's like a crisis is a small thing, but that, like, later, and we didn't even know if those were U.S. citizens. I mean, of course, we don't want to say U.S. citizens are more important than anyone else, but in the context of the of the obligations of the State Department, the fact that it was like, tell me, send me the information later, when I thought he would immediately go into overdrive to make sure these people are safe. And, you know, and that's, of course, just a tip of the iceberg of the scary things the State Department does, like denying that it was meeting with the um, National Director of Police who was a documented death squad leader and which who the U.S. was supporting at the time. His name was El Tigre Bonilla. Uh, I mean, this kind of thing goes on over and over and over again. And I 
there's a lot of deep, you know, as you said, there's details in the middle of the stories. There's also details in the book because I wanted the reader to see the how it actually plays out in real time. Yeah, we're speaking with Dana Frank, and the book is The Long Honduran Night, Resistance, Terror, and the United States in the Aftermath of the Coup. The the activism, as you recount, was new to you, and, and I think it was in some ways thrilling and fulfilling uh, to you, but it was also surprising, uh, as you recount, to most people to see the level of activism that rose up in, in Honduras after the coup. This was this This was new there. Well, you know, there's a long, long history of activism in Honduras, but not at that level. Because back when the coup happened, there was this huge coalition that came together, the National Front of Popular Resistance, that was powerful presence with hundreds of thousands of people in the streets for two years. And, you know, it was our own fantasy coalition of the labor movement, the women's movement, the LGBT movement, middle-class people committed to the constitutional rule of law, the Afro-Indigenous movement, the Indigenous movement, campesinos, the human rights community. I mean, it was really this amazing, amazing coalition. And um, that drops out of the story of Honduras, you know, and it was... But those elements that came together were in place before, but it was invisible at some level. But also, when the coup happened, the, the resistance just exploded culturally. I mean, new songs and graffiti and... Young people just completely transformed, and it was a really amazing and beautiful thing in the middle of all the horror. And one of the things I was trying to do in the book is to capture the beautiful creativity and bravery of the resistance to this day, and then in the middle of all the horror and repression, because I think the media coverage, and maybe we can talk about it on Doris, is that it's just unrelenting horror. And... There is certainly unrelenting horror, but there's also unrelenting bravery, resistance, and joie de vivre, and and joy, and dancing, and birthday parties. And I put those things in the book that I was part of because, or not part of, but various things, various stories, because I want the reader to grasp that it's also people in struggle, and that that's a beautiful thing. Because so often the narrative we get is just powerless people sobbing in the morgue, and there are many other forms of resistance in the book, the land struggles, land recuperation struggles by campesinos whose land was stolen, middle-class people in the so-called indignados movement protesting against the stealing of of money of as many as $90 million from the National Health Service by current President Juan Orlando Hernandez and his party when he was running for election in 2013. Um, Libre, the opposition party that came out of the resistance, which, you know, has probably won in 2013, has the second biggest number in Congress and in coalition with Salvador Nasrallah, a centrist figure, um, won the election um, a, a year ago. So that whole story of successful resistance and and liter- electoral power and power in the streets has so disappeared from the U.S. mainstream media narrative of what's going on in Honduras. It's just like nothing but suffering victims. Yeah, I was struck. I, I think all of that does come through in the book, and I, and I was struck in the book uh, by the importance of what the major corporate media in the United States decides to to say or not, and there's there's the moment in in 2012 when the media begins to cover the story a little bit in a partial way, and and your uh, and you published an op-ed in the New York Times that was a big part of of moving the media. But but I was really struck by your comment when you get to the spring of 2014 that precisely as the U.S. Congress was getting to a tipping point 
moved toward taking action on Honduras and recognizing how bad Honduras was, uh, the State Department begins pushing out this story about uh, the invasion of the of the hordes of of immigrants uh, from Honduras into the United States. This was a this was a consciously created uh, media event, wasn't it? Well, you know, and first of all, just to you know, back up here a little bit, as you underscore, by 2014, there's tremendous pushback. In Congress, um, conditions had been placed on the funding for Honduras starting in 2012. There were 94 members of the House that signed letters saying cut all security aid for Honduras. And these things didn't make it into the media, but by 2012, these things are starting to happen on a very big scale and questioning in the Senate as well. And and, um, right is that, um, you know, in the spring of 2014, right, as I say, I think there was some kind of a potential tipping point that you could see when the new ambassador, James Neeland, at his confirmation hearing, you could see it in various things that key figures were making. And then BAMO, this discovery of 57,000 undocumented, unaccompanied minors arriving at the U.S. border. Now, it was it was Breitbart News that blew up that story. And then that, in turn, created a lot of mainstream media attention to a so-called crisis. And a lot of that was concern about the, the situation of the children. But also then it got blown up into this as a threat to the United States. So, you know, the notion that 57,000 poor children arriving at the border was some kind of a military threat to the United States it shows you how out of control things were at, at that moment, and that was the framework that was set uh, that we're living with today since the caravan, the caravans of the past year, and this framing of them as a threat. But also, you can what what you can see in 2014 is the policy response to that by the Obama administration was to treat Juan Orlando Hernandez as the, the corrupt dictator president of the country as a heroic hero protecting the little children of Honduras and poured, the U.S. poured even more money right as when they conceivably could have been cutting off aid, turned and poured even more money into Honduras and into Guatemala, too, where the president at the time was, um, at that time was, um, was uh, implicated in genocidal torture, the man, uh, Perez Molina, who was the president at the time and who was later deposed a year later. And, you know, sort of this celebration of these terrifying figures and regimes in the name of helping the children. And it's like opening the coffers through something called the Alliance for Prosperity. And, you know, Joe Biden had a, a big op-ed in the New York Times in, uh, I think, January, February of of 2015, saying give a billion dollars to the so-called Northern Triangle, which is Honduras. Um, Nicaragua, excuse me, Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador, and clumping those three countries together and saying, give them lots of aid in the name of stopping migration. And that aid then got poured into precisely the sectors that uh, are destroying livelihoods in Honduras. So they, that aid goes to, you know, things like not only does it go to security forces who are killing people, and responsible for all kinds of human rights abuses with impunity, but it also goes into a what model an ec- model of economic development that is destroying livelihoods, um, like palm oil production that uh, producers forcing campesino collectives off their land, like mining and hydroelectric projects that are forcing indigenous people off their lands, and that's why Berta Cáceres, the important the famous indigenous activist, was killed protesting one of these hydroelectric dams, um, and the maquiladora sector, which is apparel export production for the most part, um, that is uh, horrible, horrible working conditions. And all of this is happening with 
um, with almost no labor law enforcement under terrible conditions. So what gets called economic development in the name of helping these people is also terrifying. But more importantly, the U.S. is continuing to um, shore up the dangerous regime of Juan Orlando Hernandez. And, you know, the worse that things go and the more that, you know, the caravans underscore that people are fleeing that regime and it's corrupt and police and military, uh, then the U.S. says the answer is to give them even more money. Yeah, which I, I, I don't call the, the security forces security forces if they if they don't make anything secure. And I don't call this kind of money aid because it's it's not aiding uh, anyone. It's, it's Well, it's also tied for... in with drug traffickers. I mean, people may remember that the, uh, the president's brother, Tony Hernandez, was just arrested in the United States um, a couple months ago. And it's in, in established in U.S. federal court in New York to be moving large amounts of drugs and also arms and also... And that, you know, there's no way that it seems very unlikely that the president wouldn't know what his brother was doing. And his brother, Tony, was a Congress member um, as well. And uh, the national director of security is in charge of the police. His former general has been twice named in U.S. federal court to be overseeing drug trafficking flights. And, and the AP established a year ago that the top three new cops, directors of the police, had been involved in cocaine trafficking. So we're actually giving money to the drug traffickers at the very top level. I mean, we're funding drug trafficking in Honduras, people that are involved in it, and then saying, oh, look, they're stopping drug trafficking. And, like, who's the threat here? You know, the threat becomes children and starving people who are going to get killed by gangs, and then the gangs are in bed with the very police that people are fleeing and that the U.S. wants to fund. Yeah, I, I, I guess people are supposed to imagine that families send their children off alone to a foreign country because they're simply irrational monsters, uh, rather than stopping for 30 seconds and thinking uh, what would make someone do that would be that it's a greater risk to keep them there. Uh, and you could hand somebody this book, The Long Honduran Night, and they would understand that without having to do any thinking. But Well, there's this narrative that, we, that is out there, which is like, that it's never phrased this way that somehow it's bad parenting that is the problem here and that these people would you should you know the the m m the acting ambassador had even Poulton has been putting out tweets for the last month saying don't travel it's dangerous as if people don't know it's dangerous and of course it's dangerous partly because of u.s policy that's what people these people are refugees from u.s policy and what's going on in honduras is not a natural disaster it's the result of direct result of u.s support for this regime and the honduran human rights community activist community civil rights community these people will be the first to say that you should just get out of there and on stop legitimating and funding funding this terrifying government. And, you know, I think some of that bad parenting stuff um, is is tied in with historic racism, that somehow brown people can't make their own decisions about parenting and aren't wise parents. Um, and when these people have a long history of trying to have st- uh, strategies to keep themselves and their children alive. Well, what's happening with the these caravans lately? Well, I mean, th- we see these caravans. The caravans have been forming for years. It's a way for people to move safely through from Central America through Mexico to the border um, without being exploited by coyotes or um, people uh, that they get paid to move people so and to protect themselves as they pass through Mexico in particular, um, where it's very, very dangerous. And I think people are aware of that. So, um, you know, the caravans are people who are trying and also they're trying to seek asylum if you listen to their stories. And there has been some beautiful reporting 
in the last six months in which um, reporters ask people why they're traveling them, they'll say, because the police were going to kill us, because my daughter was being forced into a gang, because I observed the elections and then someone and reported election abuse authority, uh, abuses by election authorities, by the ruling party, and someone tried to kill me. I mean, the individual stories are very powerful about what people are fleeing including the policies that they're fleeing. And um, so that's in the, so these people are seeking asylum under U.S. asylum laws, and, and then the U.S. under the Trump administration wants to abrogate the U.S.'s legal obligations and moral obligations to, to these folks. And these folks are fleeing U.S. policy. They're refugees of U.S. policy. And so it's not like you just even say, well, what's going down at the border or why can't they govern themselves? We are governing them in a way that is making them die. And so it's all, this is of a piece, U.S. immigration policy doesn't just happen as the border. Not only is there this terrifying militarization of of the, all the border states, and even of course places like my own backyard where people get pulled off the have been pulled off the buses and they uh, and asked for their IDs um, and then rounded up, and that including under the Obama administration. Um, so I mean, what you're seeing is people that are fleeing a repressive regime and trying to follow legal asylum um, procedures in the United States and being barred from that by our own militarization. Up here, you have a militarization of the Honduran border, or U.S.-funded border security, border patrol in Honduras is stopping people from leaving their own country, while the U.S. military is trying to stop people from legally entering the United States and applying for asylum, and using tear gas um, on Mexican soil. Your book, Dana Frank, tells this story of the past several years of all the of all the wonderful, courageous, uh, creative activism resisting this coup and and this thuggish government series of of governments that have followed this coup. Uh, and it, it's a story of activism with a general pattern of things nonetheless getting worse. And so I think it's important to ask. How much worse would things have been in Honduras without the activism? Well, you know, as a history teacher my whole life who writes about social movements and specifically about labor, it's like you're never going to get a headline in the papers that says, organizing works, <laughs> you know, which it does. I mean, in terms of the solidarity in the United States, the goal has been, on the one hand, to challenge the big-level policy, and on the other hand, to raise human rights issues about Honduras so that the Honduran people can live to see another day and to find what it is they want and how they want to be governed on their own sovereign terms. Um, I think that I, so much of um, uh, solidarity work on the ground, all a beautiful solidarity movement all over the United States involving faith-based people, labor people, all kinds of people, first and foremost Hondurans and a lot of Salvadorans and all kinds of folks, um, has been um, to also protect individuals in the social movements. I mean, most famously, uh, through, uh, through tutors of the United States, of Europe, Canada, and also delegations down there. But, you know, that has kept people alive. But, you know, I think one of the shocks of Berta Casares' killing uh, three years ago in March was that, that we thought that it, we at least could keep someone at her level alive, someone who'd met with the Pope, who'd been given the Goldman Environmental Prize, and when they killed her, that was a sign they'd kill anyone. But, you know, I think that even many, many more people would be dead if it wasn't for activism. I mean, the Hondurans are incredibly brave, and they keep sending the message to their government that no matter what, they're going to go in the streets. And this was challenged last year when, for the first time in decades, the Honduran government was using um, live bullets against Hondurans, and they had not done that after the coup. 
um, and at, clearly in some kind of concerted command from the top of the security forces, the, the police and the military police both started um, killing, using light bullets and killed at least 22 people, mostly the military, in the, in the weeks after the coup. And some of those were, just, were bystanders or they just were shot up when they were peacefully demonstrating or the security forces just fired randomly into crowds. And, and the activism, the, the activism has stayed nonviolent through these. I mean, years. you know, that's what, you know. Thank you how, for pointing that much, out. Because how much worse might things be if it hadn't stayed nonviolent? Well, you know, that's a very interesting question. You know, it, it's what, what one thing it is amazing that all these years, it's not like the opposition is killing the security forces. It's the other way around, along with private actors. Uh, private security forces that kill uh, kill the opposition with impunity. I want to underscore that the impunity rate is somewhere around 95%, which means that pretty much anybody can kill anybody they want and nothing's going to happen to them, including skyrocketing domestic violence. The so-called femicides or killings of women have shot up, as well as killings of men and, and of children. Um, you know, I, it's an interesting question because um, there's a lot of you know, veterans of the 1980s. I mean, Honduras lived through the 1980s and didn't have the armed struggle that Central America and Nicaragua and Guatemala did, but there were certainly people that were involved in those movements. But they also saw how quickly a lot of people can die once you take up armed struggle. And so it's interesting that armed struggle has not been on the table uh, since the coup, but that also means that, you know, then how do you have another strategy? I mean, people had the first two years of sort of uh, insurrection in the streets strategy, a peaceful insurrection protest in the street strategy for two years. Um, and then in a complicated process, the, uh, the opposition split into people coming out of social movements that wanted to continue to build a base from below and those that wanted to form an electoral party. And that's what Libre, the in many ways successful electoral, uh, um, a political party, came out of those who wanted to pursue an electoral path. But what are you supposed to do now? I mean, the election was stolen. Uh, the opposition party is just blocked from uh, even acting in Congress, and the other right-wing party votes with the ruling party. The ruling party controls the apparatus in the Congress. It's not like you go and like, write a letter to your Congress member and they'll do what you want. The, the, Juan Orlando controls the Attorney General's office. He controls all the Supreme Court. He controls the Congress, and he controls the police and the military, and the military are all over the streets. There's 4,000 military with, patrolling with, the streets with real and killing people, so it's like, where is the political process there? Um, we, we've, and we've what's amazing is people still demonstrate on um, on January twenty seventh. There's going to be big demonstrations. It's the anniversary, first anniversary of Juan Orlando's illegal second inauguration of, from a year ago. Just about a one minute left. Uh, what can people do in the United States and elsewhere around the world to help? Well, there's something very clear-cut right now, which is the Berta Cáceres Human Rights in Honduras Act. It was first introduced um, three three years ago. It will be introduced in the next few weeks in the new Congress by um, and, and by Congressman Hank Johnson, and it calls for a suspension of U.S. Uh, security aid to Honduras uh, well, until human rights abuses are addressed, and that the U.S. vote no on all multilateral development bank loans to the Honduran government, to the, excuse me, to the Honduran security, security forces. And, you know, we had 71 people on that last year. We have to get all, some of those have retired or lost their re-elections. Or we have to get all those people on that were on it before, get the new people on, and get and try to get that to actually pass the House. So, um, 
everybody out there that's listening, talk to your Congress member, ask them to support right now the Berta Caceres that they can act. Um, they can, um, if you want to read it, it's going to, it's being updated by, but if you want to read it, it's at HR 1299 in the previous Congress. You can just Google that and ask for the test. But you can please, please push your Congress member, whoever they are, to support the Berta Caceres Act and to do more. Um, to support it, that's a very easy thing people can do. Uh, in the Senate, they can ask for a Berta Caceres Act in the Senate, ask for the suspension of security aid for Honduras, and more prote- more voices in support of um, of uh, civil liberties in Honduras. We'll have to leave it there. We'll post links to anything else at talknationradio.org. Our guest has been Dana Frank. The book is The Long Honduran Night, Resistance, Terror, and the United States in the Aftermath of the Coup. Dana Frank, thank you for coming on Talk oh, Nation Radio. Oh, thanks so much for caring so much. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. Org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.